Good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be back again and find a day when it's not raining down here. Um, it's been a strange summer, really, because I was in Chichester twice, last Sunday being one of them, and it poured with rain both times. And most times I've been down here, it's been raining. So I don't know whether there's showers of blessing or whether there's something else going on, but it's a real pleasure to be back with you. In many ways, I feel this is something of a home church, and I hope you regard me as something of a home preacher. Mm. We're going to read this morning from Colossians chapter 3, and one of the interesting things about Scripture is the broad breadth of its significance the various aspects of doctrine which it raises, and also aspects of Christian practice. And this is one of those sections which is very directly towards Christian practice. And I emphasize the word Christian because some of these passages are quite difficult to take on board if you be not a Christian. So from verse 18 of Colossians chapter 3, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, with, with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. A huge series of statements. I want to have a look first of all this morning um, at how things were in the ancient world prior to the coming of Christianity. And I've done a little bit of research which I hope won't bore you, but which I found most, most interesting. The situation in the ancient world was quite remarkably uh, different to what it is in present-day Britain. For wives or for women generally, in the Jewish society, there was a movement beginning towards divorce, so much so that the Lord talked very directly to the Jews in his teaching in Matthew chapter 19 about the requirement to be the husband of one wife. And uh, it was possible for a Jewish man at the time when the Lord Jesus was here to divorce his wife just by standing public, publicly in the street and declaring three times, I divorce thee, divorce thee, divorce thee. And that was the job done. There was no recourse. There was no comeback for the wife. She was on the street as from that particular moment. 
don't know how you feel about that, ladies, but it, it's difficult to understand that the Jewish law, which was so directly emphasizing that you should be the husband of one wife and that for life, should be so thwarted by the dictates of men. For the Greeks in society, and you remember that the Greek Empire had finished about 300 years before the Lord came to earth, Greeks married for their diary and for ha- to have someone to manage their household. They were kept largely out of sight. Indeed, most uh, households had an inner courtyard, which was the, the wife's domain. But the men had many concubines and courtesans and said they took concubines and courtesans for their pleasure. So the standing of a Greek wife was was very low. For the Romans, at the time when the Lord Jesus was here, marriage was in ruins. Jerome, who was a, a Roman historian, writes of a woman who was being married for, to her 23rd husband, and she was his 21st wife. You thought it only happened in Hollywood, didn't you? <laughs> Quite remarkably, marriage was just in ruins. It was a a matter of convenience. What of children then? Well, children were always subject to the father, even in adulthood. And as long as the, the father lived, he ruled over his children, literally, and treated them as he chose. If unaccepted at birth, they were left to die. That is, the child, for some reason, wasn't accepted. They were left to die. And if they were deformed or sickly, they were destroyed. So children were of of no standing, really. There were 60 million slaves in the Roman world at the time of Christ. (coughs) 60 million. That's almost the population of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Four slaves were the price of one horse in the marketplace. So you get four slaves for a horse. And if sick, they were left to die. So you'll immediately recognize that Christianity has done more for women, children, and slaves than anything else in the history of mankind. And Paul writes into that particular situation... You remember he, he's writing to people that he doesn't know. He's never been to Colossae. And he's writing in general what the Christian teaching of his day would be. But here the emphasis is that the, the risen life of Christ is to be expressed in the home and in the workplace and in the wider world. And I want to address that as directly as I may this morning. And you will notice that throughout this passage, all of the injunctions are positive. Perhaps we could have the text back up again, Kevin, if that's possible. All of the injunctions are positive. In other words, each group of people is addressed in a positive way to react in a positive injunction to what the uh, teaching of the apostle was. And he begins appropriately enough with, the, the wives who were so despised in the ancient world. And he says, Wives, submit to your husband as is fitting in the Lord. You'll notice that 
Apart from the word to husbands, everything else is in, has got links to the Lord and the Lordship of Christ. And I think that's something we need to keep in mind in our generation, that we honor the Lord by submitting to his word. Whenever Paul is writing a similar passage to the church at Ephesus, which he knew very well, having worked amongst them for a year and a half at least, uh, we discover that he says to the church prior, just immediately prior to this particular passage which he writes to them, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. You'll find that in chapter 5 of Ephesians and verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. So the emphasis here is that the wives are to place themselves in array. And it's a most interesting word that the apostle uses. It's only used three times in the New Testament. I beg your pardon, five times in the New Testament. And each, each time it means to place in array. So uh, if you can think of the wives as a group, then in a Christian household, they were to place themselves under the authority of their husbands. This wasn't a, a submission where the husband said, hey, you obey me, you do what I tell you. Rather, it was a position which the wives assumed in order to give glory to the Lord. And in our society, in 21st century Britain, this is a very difficult concept because we recognize that wives are equal to their husband in all things, and rightly so. This has got nothing to do with equality. This has got to do with an attitude of heart. That whenever a wife appreciates her husband, she places herself in this position, in an array under her husband's authority. The subject, the church is subject to Christ out of love for him and honors him as Lord. And we recognize that. All the songs that we have sung this morning, uh, without exception, all emphasize that, the Lordship of Christ. So within our marriages, we express our obedience to the Word of God, to the Lordship of Christ. And we place ourselves, wives, in this particular position. What then of husbands? Well, there are two injunctions given to husbands. They are to love their wives and do not be harsh with them. Love and do not be harsh. The word which Paul uses is not the word eros, which is the normal Greek word for love, uh, sexual love. But the word which he uses here is agape, which is used almost exclusively of the love of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. The Lord says, I agape you. And that love was sacrificial. You know, it, it recognized the, the worth, as we've been emphasizing in our communion service, it recognized the worth of the individual. And whenever we took communion this morning, we were recognizing that the Lord valued us enough to die for us. And that's the word here which is used of a husband loving his wife. It's to value her above all else, above himself, above his own life and to recognize her significance 
as far as that's concerned. Now, husbands, you might think to yourself, what happens if I have a real bad wife? It very rarely happens. But you just said that it doesn't matter. This, junk, this injunction from the apostle is positive. You love your wife in spite of. We love our wives, men, because we love our wives, because of who they are and what they mean to us. But Paul also is emphasizing, in spite of what her, the wife might be, my responsibility is to love. Let me tell you a little story. There was a, an East African chieftain who had five daughters. And four of them were lovely to look at, and one of them wasn't. The four younger ones all got married first, which was very unusual in African culture. And the fifth was the eldest, who was not quite as pretty as the other four. One day, a young man came along to the chief and said, I want to marry your daughter. And the chief said, how highly would you value her? He said, I want to give you ten cows for your daughter. The highest price for the previous four had been three cows. And the chief was delighted. And he said to the young man, why do you place so high a value on my daughter? Because she's not as pretty as the ones who have already married. He said, because I value her at ten cows. You see the import? Husbands, value your wives. Recognize their significance and value them. And secondly, do not be harsh with them. The word is actually to be bitter towards them. Do not be bitter towards your wife. Sometimes, perhaps, in the stress of a situation we might be. But this would to be would be to um, denigrate our wives. In the Ephesian passage, Paul says to husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church. And there's no bitterness in Christ's love towards the church in spite of what we might be and what we haven't been for him as Christian people. Christ still loves us because he loves us. And he's expressed that, as I already mentioned, in his death for us on the cross. And so the thought would be that husbands are to love their wives even unto death, to recognize their significance and value. Thirdly, he addresses children. And again, you'll notice it's just a, a positive injunction. Children, obey your parents and everything. And then there's a little, little coda for this pleases the Lord. Obey your parents and everything. I was a really disobedient son. Not very openly. I just did things that my father and mother didn't know about. But I knew that if they did know about them, they would have forbidden me to do them. <coughs> that's a bit obtuse, but you know that's the sort of character I was. Until I came to the Lord at the age of eight and suddenly recognized that I had to be different. 
Obey your parents. The Old Testament statement is, Honor your parents, honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the earth. Children, obey your parents. Some of us still have parents alive. And sometimes it's hard to obey them. But it's a requirement of the Lord. That is, when it doesn't transgress what the Lord would have you do. Because the Lordship of Christ is that which is preeminent through this passage. So I obey the Lord first. What then if my parent asked me to do something which I know would be disobeying the Lord? Bringing his situation into disrepute. I have to obey the Lord first. It's pleasing to him. You want to make God happy, obey your parents. I recognize there are not too many children in here, but you're in here, Jonathan. But, you know, we obey our parents. And you'll notice further upon that, that there, I mean, if you've been writing this passage, if I've been writing this passage, I'd have put fathers before children. I mean, just from the point of view of the way the passage is written. But you'll notice that Paul addresses children before he addresses the fathers. And here we come to a major area of responsibility. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Do not embitter your children and cause discouragement or make them moody and despondent. Someone said to me recently when I was out preaching, you must have great, take great pleasure in your children. And I said, yes, I do. Take great pleasure in your children. And I was thinking about that in relation to this particular passage. Don't embitter your children or cause them to be discouraged. Are we impossible to please? You know, do you ever say to your youngsters, you know, what you did the other day really brought me pleasure. It was really great. I don't mean in the sense that you're proud of them. Because pride is something which is discordant to God. But that you take pleasure in what they have become and who they are as people. After all, you're at least partly responsible for them. 50% or so. So who they are is very much a product of what you are as a father. Luther who said many wise things, even though he was a monk until later in life. Beside the rod for discipline, have an apple for encouragement. Beside the rod for discipline, have an apple for encouragement. Benjamin West, the great American painter, when he was about nine years old, he had a younger sister called Sally. And when his mother came home, she found that he had painted Sally. Not in the sense of making a painting of Sally, but she, he had actually painted Sally. Created a desperate mess. And he was kissed by his mother. That's something, isn't it? And he became one of the greatest painters, as you know, in America. The story of Benjamin West. And then Paul comes to this difficult passage because 
Paul accepted the world as it was. You know, I've mentioned there were 60 million slaves in the empire. Paul didn't interfere with the status quo in that sense. He just gave instructions, again, positive instructions to those who were slaves. And let me just outline a little bit. Slaves had absolutely no say in the proceedings of a household. Their one job was to obey their master or mistress. If they displeased their master or mistress, and there's quite a number of instances of this in relation to the Caesars and the slaves in Caesar's household, and one of them actually kept uh, a pool which he dispatched slaves in within the household. So if they displeased them, they finished up in the pool. And they were eaten by whatever animal happened to be in there at that particular time. So the slave was seen as, as worthless. And what Paul is doing here under the direction of the Lord is he's giving them worth. He's giving them value. Not on the sense of four slaves being the same as the cost of a horse. But for the individual slave that they recognized just how significant they were before the Lord. And again, Paul begins with uh, particular emphasis. Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it. Not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. He's emphasizing the, the grace of wholeheartedness. If, you're, if your lot was to be a slave, it was really, really tough. The average lifetime of a slave in total in the Roman Empire at this time was six years. So they worked as slaves, you know. They were, within the household, they were possibly valued. But in other situations, when they were working a quarry or, or whatever their particular task was, they were, they were discarded. If they were unwell or unfit for duty, they were just put to death. Six years. And Paul's saying to these men and women, Listen, what gives you value in this situation is if you reverence the Lord. If you recognize that your lot somehow has come about because of the, the will of God, however that has been interpreted, you do it out of reverence for the Lord. And you say to yourself, well, I, I couldn't work like that. Of course you couldn't. But you weren't a slave. Some were slaves from birth. Some were made slaves. Some were brought into the galleys to row a galley until they died at the oar. It was a miserable, miserable existence. And what Paul is doing here is broadening their horizon so that they can see that somehow or other, in their simple obedience, if they did it out of reverence for the Lord, they were of some value significantly to the Lord. And who knows how many slaves will be in the higher precincts of heaven because of their obedience to this injunction. Their, their obedience and sincerity of heart to do it with wholeheartedness. I think in our own place of work, it would make a huge difference if we did everything wholeheartedly. We're not slaves. But to do it wholeheartedly, you know, this is my job, and I, I really enjoy it, and I'm going to do it for the Lord. Effectively, secular work is full-time service. 
the New Testament slave worked for nothing. Worked with a view to the, the future. See what follows this. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you're serving. So in their general demeanor, they, they, gain, they gain status in their own thinking and in their own minds if they recognize this, this state of life was temporary. What they were doing as Christian slaves, they were serving the Lord directly or indirectly. And you can see what dignity this brings to the, the most menial of tasks. Four, four times, Paul says in this section, you're working for the Lord. You do it as unto the Lord. You do it out of reverence for Christ. And you're going to receive eventually the, an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. And I think that my, my own life would benefit from this long view. You know, we all, as we get older, we, we all suffer from short-sightedness in more ways than one. But, you know, this, this whole question of, of recognizing that which we do on earth is about reward and glory. Paul is never ashamed to mention reward, even in his own life when he's talking to Timothy in the last chapter of 2 Timothy 4, he talks about looking forward to the, the crown of righteousness that he's going to receive from the Lord. The, the, the thing which will enhance his earthly ministry is that which the Lord will provide eternally. And his view of life is always colored by doing it as unto the Lord. And here he's saying to these folk who are um, nothing, in the eyes of men, you're something in the eyes of the Lord. You're doing, you're living your life as unto the Lord. And then his final injunction, which begins chapter 4. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So the motivation for Christian masters is totally different from an earthly master for someone who has no, no knowledge of the Lord Jesus. He's answerable to the master that he has in heaven. And even though he be master of a few slaves down here, he's to treat them in the same way as his master in heaven treats him. And it's an interesting choice of word, isn't it, to, to have the word master. You'll notice it's got a capital and it actually means to recognize the Lord's overall lordship. I'm a master of slaves, but there's a boss in heaven. My grandfather uh, eventually worked in a firm which he had built up and where he had about 95 men and women working for him. And uh, on more than one occasion, I saw him take one of his workers aside and just say to them, I'm really pleased with what you're doing. Now, I don't know if he, well, he must have read this verse because I'm sure he talked about it in the Bible studies that he, he ran so frequently. But this whole question of recognizing, even though we might have some standing on earth, and we might be in a position of authority over others on earth, ultimately we're under a far greater authority than that. There's a master in heaven to whom we're answerable. 
And so Paul says to them, provide your slaves what is right and fair. In other words, he's encouraging Paul to be righteous. There's no place for exploitation in the Christian sphere. We should never exploit anybody, however menial their particular responsibilities are. Is it my business? It's not my business. I finish with an illustration. There was a chap in America, if I told you his name, you might remember it. But there was a chap in America who ran a large business. He had many hundreds of employees. And it began to go down the drain. He was a Christian. And he felt as time went on that he needed to make more of the workplace available to God. And in spite of the fact that his financial position was very precarious, he decided that 5% of the business should be made over to the Lord. And it was impressed upon him that this was something he he should do just by his, his appearance before the Lord. And he recognized that any inheritance he had and every gift, any gifting he had was from the Lord. So he made 5% of the business over to God. And it turned a corner. And you might say to yourself cynically, well, there's no connection between the two events. To cut a very long story short, because the story is very long, eventually the Lord had 99% ownership, and he had 1% ownership. And he actually made the whole business over to the Lord Christ as he called it. And he took 1% of the return on the business. Now, that's an extreme example. But it is an example of what this whole business of being in a position of authority in a particular workplace is. To recognize that, you know, everything we do is because of the the Lord's gifting. It's because of his goodness to us. And if we happen to be in a position of authority... Let's recognize that those who are in the unfortunate position of not being in positions of authority still still need to be treated in righteousness and fairness, which are the two words that Paul uses here. Right and fair. So no twisting or no exploitation, but recognizing as a master that I'm responsible to a greater master, a far greater master in heaven. I found this message difficult to preach this morning. You may recognize why in certain areas. But the responsibility in my preaching is to just draw our attention to these principles that are outlined here. To recognize that in every aspect of our life we are answerable to the God of glory. To recognize that in everything we do we are answerable to him. I have to be Christ conscious in my life and recognize his lordship in my marriage, in relation to my children, in relation to the workplace, in relation to my functioning if I happen to be a master with particular responsibilities. God bless you and and thank you for listening. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you that your word doesn't dodge issues in our lives but brings us to face them. And we pray that you'll help us to understand your word as from yourself this morning, that you'll help us to put it into practice because the injunctions are quite simple. 
what we recognize that can only be put into practice under the direction and with the help of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray for each of the lives that are represented here today, that they begin to function even better because of their acknowledgement of you in all aspects. And we bring our own lives to you today, Father, and ask that they may be used to glorify you in every aspect of our living. For your glory we pray. Amen.